What you're hearing is part of the Sydney Memorial to the victims of the Great Famine. Its focus is 20 shiploads of orphan girls sent to Australia about 150 years ago. In August 1998, President Mary McAleese laid the foundation stone for this compelling tribute. In the courtyard of the Hyde Park barracks, a plain table intersects a stone wall. It's a symbol of both domesticity and sparseness, and of the link between those who left and those who stayed behind. Replacing the wall are two glass panels inscribed with names, all female. The names fade at the edges to represent those lost to memory. Three bronze stools are casually arranged under a nearby tree as though their occupants had just left. From its branches, the sounds you're hearing come and go as fragmented Irish voices, including my own, repeat the testimonies passed down from survivors of those harrowing times. the bones and bury them together in one grave. The head, he said, drooped down over the edge of the basket. Then they burnt the house to the ground. And from it a twist of bright yellow hair hung down, sweeping the road. She died of famine fever. Nobody would take the child, and in the evening... Nobody would look them in the face. The living were out of their feeling. Despite the city traffic, a terrible stillness surrounds the sculpture. The barracks was the first place of refuge for most of the 4,000 or so girls sent here from workhouses in Ireland. This is their story and especially the story of 18-year-old Eliza Fraser from Belfast, as seen through the eyes of her great-granddaughter, Joan Dwyer. Every time I think about Eliza, the nice thing about her is I, I start laughing. I think, you beat the system. You really stood up no matter what they threw at you. You got through it. You got through it. <laughs> I mean, I've got to be careful because I have feelings and emotions. I've, I've given these people personalities and it's not very, it's not academically accurate, but I like these people. <laughs> In remembering the victims of the Great Famine and their descendants, we should not overlook the fact, which is now rightly pointed to by many scholars, that it had, of course, particular consequences for the women of Ireland when more women left our shores than from any other European country. Irish women were forced to break the most intimate ties of kinship and friendship as they left their families and their home to build their lives and a home for their loved ones in other distant parts of the world. Margaret O'Donnell, age 16, Catherine Waters, age 14, Dungarvan, County Waterford. Mary Ann Doyle, age 15, Mount Malik, County Leash. Anne Merriman, age 17, County Kildare. Sarah Mulligan, age 16, Banbridge, County Down. Annie Lyons, age 15, County Tipperary. Mariah McDermott, age 14, Kilmore, County Roscommon. 
Catherine Joyce, age 15, Ballon Road, County Mayo. Johanna Smith, age 16, Bandon, County Cork. Anne Briars, aged 18, Isle of Burt, County Derry. Marianne Brown, Between May of 1848 and April of 1850, according to the records of the Poor Law Commissioners in Ireland, some 4,114 orphan girls and young women between the ages of 14 and 20 were dispatched from union workhouses in every county of Ireland to the Australian ports of Sydney, Port Phillip and Adelaide. As history tells us, the scheme began with the arrival in Sydney from Belfast of the notorious Earl Grey in October 1848. I think I will have some difficulty ever drinking that tea again. <laughs> My great-grandmother's name was Eliza Fraser. She came to Australia on the Earl Grey. That was the very first ship that came out from Ireland. And uh, there were about 50-odd girls who came notoriously to be known as the Belfast Girls. And they were said to be unruly. I tend to think of them as being spirited and without a great deal of respect for authority and prepared to stand up for themselves. There's a big demand for wives, of course, in Australia. And there's a big demand for domestic servants. And a big demand for women by a male population who have been deprived of as the authorities see it, the civilising influence of, of a woman. Uh, so official policy is provide labour, provide wives uh, for these rough colonists. Her name was Catherine uh, Norton, and uh, she was a little more fortunate than others. Uh, her father had been a convict, was a convict, and was in Australia. Her mother had died in, in uh, Ireland, but her two sisters followed her. So he had remarried... And so, in effect, in Goulburn area, there was a family there for her. She married um, John Broderick, who was the son of a convict, and uh, they had eight children. And he was a very, very successful man. He was a surveyor, uh, a JP, and they did very well. She was quite a wealthy woman when she died. There are 4,000 of them, and you're going to find the whole range of the human condition there. So you have the two extremes of the casualties and of those who do very, very well... And they marry early. Something like two-thirds of them are married within the first three years of their arrival. So there's a truth, a grain of truth to the, to the story of these are bride ships, these are famine bride ships. Mariah McDermott was a 14-year-old girl who came from Kilmore in County Roscommon. She married when she was 18 in St Mary's Cathedral to a Luke Featherston. She was left with two children very early in life. Uh, she had to become a midwife to make a way. And she looked after the destitute, the prostitutes, the people who couldn't look after themselves. To us, she's a very strong uh, personality and part of Ireland that we're very proud of. There were only about 500,000 Australians at that particular time in the 1840s, and uh, they populated Australia. Bridget McMahon, age 19, Rackkeel, County Limerick. Anne Dowes, age 19, Mullahoran, County Cavan. Maria Fury, 18, County Galway. Maria Blundell, age 15, County Dublin. 
Catherine Fox, age 17, County Armagh. Catherine Nocton, Tyna, County Galway. Bridget Carney, age 15, Athlone, County Westmeath. Rose Sherry, age 17, Carrick Macross, Monaghan. Bridget Cavan, we here age can only begin to guess at the fortitude and the courage they needed to find inside themselves in order to transcend the aching loneliness, the despair and the heartache that must have been their bitter portion in many, many days of their lives. But it is to their credit that they endured awesome hardships, they became witnesses to that indomitable Irishry, to that indomitable spirit, that, and indeed to that indomitable human nature, the sheer transcendence of love. If there's any word I'd describe these girls with, it's survivors. That's my big word for them, they're survivors. And be honest about that they were not maybe the most attractive people that you would ever come across in the world, but they were strong. And they were survivors and they were prepared to do difficult things to survive. And I I compare them on today's terminology with street kids. That kids are homeless, might have no parents, no education, no jobs, they're foul-mouthed, they drink... Is it their fault their children? That's what I like to hold on to the orphan girls for, not because it's some romantic story about the past, necessarily, but it's a story for us today to say, what are we doing with our children? A former nurse, Joan Dwyer has joined the army of retirees who spend their days sifting through the archives, trying to retrieve their family history. The copious records on the orphan girls have also been studied by historian Trevor McLaughlin. Originally from Northern Ireland, but now based in Sydney, his book, Barefoot and Pregnant, gives the big picture on the scheme. Being dependent on the state was enough to qualify them as so-called orphans. Joan Dwyer's great-grandmother, Eliza Fraser, was one of many who had one parent alive. Eliza's mother, Margaret Gallagher, was a widow with two children, when she was sentenced in the 1830s to seven years' transportation to Van Diemen's Land for theft. I get quite emotional about poor Margaret because I think um, this is before the workhouse, this is before social security. You've got a couple of kids at home and you're a single mother, you pick something up. These people have got a lot more than you. All right, it's illegal, but it's understandable. I can understand a mother doing that. And I think it was a terrible thing. They knew, the documents said they knew she had two children. And nevertheless, she was still sent, literally, she couldn't have been sent further away from those children than that of Van Diemen's Land. And for what? For what? It doesn't make sense to me today. It might have made sense to them then, but it certainly doesn't make sense to me today. But she got a ticket of leave um, about mid-1840s and apparently was free in the seven years. The next thing 
trying to find what happened to her after that. She's got nothing. She's got no one. She's got no family there. Um, a woman died, whom I think is probably my Margaret. But she died alone, and I know that because her uh, death was reported by the undertaker. There was no one to report a death other than the undertaker. To my knowledge, she never knew that her daughter had actually come out to Australia as well. She died not knowing what happened to any of her children, that one was so close. When you're far away from the home that you'll soon be leaving Oh, it is many a time by night and by day That your heart will be sorely grieving for the stranger's land The women are, are essentially from families which have been broken by the famine and the extreme hardship of the period for those especially at the lower end of the social scale meant that many young women ended up in workhouses. They're simply asked, are they willing to go to Australia? And they get all the hype and Australia's a great place... You'll never starve, there's plenty of employment, there's all the rest of it. That doesn't mean to say that they're automatically selected, because they're subjected then to to close scrutiny by medical officers. References have to be obtained as to their, you know, ability to do domestic work, all the rest of it, as to their moral character. The complaint made about them was that they were the poorer quality, that we shouldn't be spending our money on people as, you know, who weren't good enough for Australia. It's the same old story. We've been hearing it ever since. If I might just give you an example of, of what he says to to his, his superiors. In conclusion, I beg to state that the low moral condition of many of the immigrants renders the early removal of all from the vessel a matter of great importance. Doesn't want them mingling with sailors. The excitement caused by arrival, which naturally prevails, inordinately affects the Irish of the class to which these immigrants belong. It's not just the Irish, but not his class. Hence, there is great difficulty in preserving good order and of preventing, in not a few cases, a spirit of wild recklessness from running into decided immorality. There's no doubt that they were foul-mouthed. I mean, I, I don't doubt that for one minute. There were too many reports and too many people saying the same thing, so you, you've got to believe it. But I love the uh, deposition from one of the constables in Belfast. He said... Just because people are foul-mouthed doesn't mean they're unchaste. And I thought, thank God, thank you. You know, <laughs> just because they were foul-mouthed didn't mean that they were prostitutes as they'd been as it been claimed. Hyde Park Barracks is the best known accommodation, beautiful building in Sydney. 
and a similar immigration depot was quickly set up in Adelaide. Now, that is a kind of hiring depot, in effect. Those who want to hire an orphan girl as domestic servant have to apply officially. They have to be vetted by colonial authorities. The officials take that duty very seriously. I don't know what job Eliza got. Uh, I've yet to find that. I will eventually. One day I'll find out what she got. But she was a doer. She did. (laughs) She arrives at the end of October 1848 and the next time we see her is in the um, approval for convicts to marry in February 1849 and already she's met somebody, the papers have gone in and the approval's given. She was not wasting any time. (laughs) So she marries a convict, Edward Joseph Dwyer. I call him Ned. I feel like he, he must have been a Ned at home. He got arrested for stealing money from a grocer in Castle Street, just below the castle. This is in Dublin? In Dublin. He was older than her. He'd been there since 1839. By the time 1848 arrives, he's ready, he wants to get married, an Irish girl arrives. That's it. But there's one interesting thing. He's a Catholic and she's a Protestant. They were both Irish. (laughs) As far as I'm concerned, that seems to be more important. So they get married and they raise the children as Catholics. That's right. And then what happens to them and the children? (laughs) It becomes more complicated. Okay, first one is Joseph. Joseph marries Elizabeth Kennedy, a good strong Presbyterian orange woman from County Antrim. And Catholic was never mentioned in the family again. It was forgotten. Literally, she wiped it off the map until people start poking about. And um, my cousin said, when I said to her, I'm telling her all this, she sat there with a shocked look on her face. She said, do you mean we've got Catholics in the family? There's only the two of us in the car, and she's whispering, she said, do you mean we've got Catholics in the family? I said, yes. I said, I hadn't thought about it either. I mean, when you think about it with a name like Dwyer, of course we've got Catholics. We, we just never thought of anything other than Australia. And um, she said, but Grandma told me I was never to marry a Catholic. I said, well, your grandma's father was a Catholic. Oh. <gasps> In a generation. In Melbourne, there's an enormous sectarian stoush, and it's in part inspired by a Melbourne Argus editorial of January 1850, where the young women were described as the most stupid, the most ignorant, the most useless, and the most unmanageable set of beings that ever cursed a country by their presence whose knowledge of household duty barely reaches to distinguish the inside from the outside of a potato, or whose intellectual pursuit is running across a bog to fetch back a runaway pig. And they get away with things that we could no longer get away with nowadays, useless trollops. These women are so ugly that they will affect the physical appearance of all Victorians in the future. 
sort of the orange-green thing comes to the fore here. But on that issue, not all the famine orphan girls were Catholic, so why were they all tarred as Catholic when, in fact, there were quite a lot of Church of Ireland and Presbyterian? It's one of those things where Irishness becomes identified with Roman Catholicism. Only now, in the last 10, 15 years, are people giving a different identity to Irishness. The fact that, from your work, the majority of them marry Englishmen and some 47% of them marry people of different religion, that would suggest that these orphan girls are almost agents of integration of Irishness into Australia in a very unseen way. Indeed, I think that's correct. My great-grandmother was Bridget McMahon. She came here per Maria, the ship, on the 1st of August, 1850. At the age of 19, designated as a dressmaker from Rathkeel in County Limerick. She left her mother Penelope behind in Rathkeel, presumably in the workhouse of which the records have been destroyed. Though she could read but not write, and obviously had no formal education, she had been educated presumably in the farmhouse by her mother and had developed considerable skills. I'm proud of that. (laughs) I may embellish that a bit. The fact remains that I seem to be the last one of her descendants who's taken a pride in needlework. (laughs) She was Roman Catholic according to the uh, shipping records... Bridget, in fact, was not one of the orphans who married early after her arrival. It was about seven years that she married a recent arrival from County Tyrone, an Orangeman, no less. And, in fact, I had uh, Raphael's Madonna della Sedia over my bed in my home as a young Presbyterian when I was a child. I now see that to be a heritage custom, let's say from Grandmother Bridget. They tend to marry older men as well. Now, whether it is older men are more desperate and get in there first, you can say that they're looking for a father figure that they never had in the famine, or or you can say that they're looking for security uh, after the hardship of the famine, or maybe the offer was just too good to refuse. eh? Uh, But that means that they're going to face many years of widowhood later in life and that means they're vulnerable too there are cases of husbands deserting their wives going off to the gold diggings and a woman is left with a large family what does she do this family historian who has great staying power has managed to trace her ancestor through the courts changing her name you know various aliases until the late 19th century by which time she had something like 32 different convictions. (laughs) It all comes back to when her husband died in the 1860s. She's left with her children. Boom. So those sorts of circumstances create the conditions whereby they have to survive by making their own, creating their own space, making a dimension for themselves. There are examples in particularly Morton Bay of the young women using the law courts as a political weapon, almost, There's a uh, deposition in the Queensland archives by Eliza 
uh, with her mark on it, she gave the deposition about a man who was accused of attempted rape and she was one of the witnesses who'd run in when she'd heard the screaming. And that the girl said that he'd been holding her down and was pulling his pants down. And they all came running. The women, I think those women were terrific. They knew they had to look after one another. I mean, it was the same on the ship. One of the girls had used foul language or she'd done something wrong and he'd put her out on the poop deck by herself, isolated her. And all the other girls complained vociferously these girls stood up for one another and maybe that was why they were called unruly and willful and and not good people but it was the thing that made them strong and made them survivors It perhaps is that Rose tended to think everyone was successful because there are a number of casualties. There's the case of Alice Ball, again from, I think it is Fermanagh, who went into Port Phillip in 1849 and after a short time employed by a schoolmaster, I think it was, and becoming pregnant by that married schoolmaster, finds herself alone in Melbourne, without support, with no friends, pregnant, throws herself into the River Yarra. There are a couple of newspaper reports, one reporting that a passerby tried to throw horse reins to her, kept throwing the reins of, of his dray to her, but she would not, she would not lay hold, and she ends up drowning. These are young women who, who are probably affected by the conditions of the famine. In a very interesting book published last year, Janet McCalman's History of the Royal Melbourne Women's Hospital, where she points out that both Scottish and Irish women who had gone through famine in those countries in the 18, late 1840s are not as physically well-developed as they might have been. They come to Australia, their diet is much better, their lifestyle is bit better, more sunshine, all various things would go to make for healthy babies. The baby is quite large that they're carrying, so it becomes extremely difficult for them to give birth. In a pre-Caesarian age, the choice was stark. The only way to save the mother's life was to kill the baby in the womb and extract it in pieces through the mother's deformed pelvis, a process known as craniotomy. The Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne records that in 1860, one in 15 of Irish patients had an underdeveloped pelvis. In 1863 and Mrs. M.C. lost her third baby to craniotomy. The following year, another Irish woman lost her sixth child that way. By 
Um, no, I, I might have the order wrong. Joseph married Elizabeth Kennedy, who was a strong Presbyterian Orange woman from uh, Lower Ballygelly in County Antrim. Mary Ann married a man named Frank Smith from Germany, Catholic. Margaret, I don't know what happened to Margaret. I've never been able to find out anything about Margaret. William died early without being married and without children. Lissy, Eliza, but she was known as Lissy in the family, married a man named Emil Kraus from what is now Croatia, was then part of Austria. The youngest child was Rachel. She married a fellow called Alexander Lawrence, who was a hairdresser from Scotland, and they were married in the rites of the Baptist Church in Ned's home. Ned, by this having been being bedridden, uh, he dies in 1894 and leaves his house to Eliza. And she became a homeowner. She was a homeowner in 1894. Sadly, there was the most dreadful depression in, uh, the, in Australia in the 1890s, a very terrible time. And about 1898, the house is sold. I don't know what happened to the money. Five months later, when the uh, application for admission to the Benevolent Asylum over on Stradbroke Island, Dunwich Benevolent Asylum, she's described as destitute, unable to work. Well, I would think she would be unable to work by this age. Um, that was 1898. She died in 1903, so she was there for five years. She's buried in an unmarked grave on Dunwich Island. Mm. Have you been to it? Yeah, oh yes, it's beautiful. This is Eliza all over. She's got the most beautiful place to be buried in that you can imagine. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, it looks out over the bay there and it's a lovely place. It just seems odd if she has Rachel there. I wonder why she doesn't go and live with Rachel. I don't know. She maybe, I mean, Rachel had children too. My guess is that she didn't get any less difficult to live with as she got older. <laughs> I mean... She could have been a really difficult old lady to live with. Um, but it doesn't mean that I admire her any the less. I don't know whether I... I don't know how I'd get on if I met her in the street. I really don't. When you think about her, do you see any of your own qualities in mm -hmm. her or of her in you? <laughs> well, let me say that the women in our family are strong-willed. That's the politest way. <laughs> We're strong-willed and independent. <laughs> and I think we got a lot of that from Eliza. <laughs> Do you think there's a bit of either Fraser or Kennedy in me? <laughs> you see what I mean? I always reckon that Eliza Fraser's found a voice. It's she amazing. never stopped talking when she was alive and now she's found me and she's not stopped talking ever since. <laughs> you feel as if you're almost the embodiment of her. Oh, look, I, I'm, I'm not a mystical kind of person, but, I mean, 
They're good stories. I never thought of anything outside Australia until um, recent years. I mean, it never entered my head. Well, I couldn't understand why people wanted to look at the past. I mean, I knew nothing about Irish history. Just never talked about it. We only ever talked about Australia. But it was an intellectual exercise until I found places that I could put people in. And it's grown and grown and grown. Because these were the things that influenced the people that became me. So do you think that her decision to go on that ship as one of the famine orphan girls was uh, a wise one, that she was better to go than to have stayed in Ireland? In my book it was. In my, I mean, I'm glad she came. Apart from the personal thing, I mean, we would know the numbers who died in Ireland. Now, if it's a choice between what she had and dying, that's no choice at all. Remembering and in commemorating the Great Famine, we are, in our special way, rescuing our famine dead. We cannot bring them back to life, but at least we can bring them back from oblivion. We can bring them back from the oblivion to which those awful times condemn them. We pay homage to them while reminding ourselves that we are bound to them as individuals and not as a group, because so often that's all they were, numbers, a group. We are bound to them, each of those individuals, by the enduring legacy of history. They are entitled to our pity. They are also entitled to our profound admiration and our respect. I am therefore honoured and privileged to have this opportunity to meet the descendants of the orphan girls in this place, which was the first shelter for the girls following their long and lonely journey from the land of their birth. really affected me greatly. Uh, I plan to encourage all of her descendants to come for a family picnic. We'll take our sandwiches to the gardens, but we'll come here first. We'll listen to the tape. We'll introduce them all to the memorial if they haven't seen it already. But I think it is important for the younger generations to know that things haven't always been this easy, that in fact the coming right across the world and separating from the mother she would never see again uh, when she couldn't communicate with her again must have been an enormous blow. I think it was for survival. I like to believe that her mother encouraged it because she wanted Bridget to survive. And I want them all to know that in every generation there have been very difficult times for us not nearly as difficult as that, but that survival and sacrifice for survival within the family 
has been our ethos combined with using new opportunities and conducting ourselves not only for our own pleasure but in a spirit of service. She's part of the Foundation Stones of Australia. Does that sound just too over the top? Every generation after them, we've gotten a bit more each time. So that at my generation and the next generation after me, generally speaking, none of us are terribly wealthy, but we're very comfortable. We've all had the opportunities for a decent education. We've generally all been employed. We've generally got our own homes. There's problems, like every family has problems. I call that a success, and I think she's part of that success. It's got to start somewhere. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll have a minute's silence now in honour of the memory of the famine dead. Ruth Shepherd, age 14, County Wicklow. Mary Ann Rock, age 21, Kiju, County Sligo. Bridget Hartigan, age 15, Newmarket, County Clare. Ellen Boyle, age 17, RD, County Laz. Ellen McElroy, age 14, Lisnaski, County Fermanagh. Mary Ann Dooling, age 19, Bolton Class, County Wicklow. Mary Ann Taff, age 15, Eden Derry, County Offaly. Mary Ann Mead, Age 17, Dunshockling, County Mead. Bridget McMahon, age 19, Rackheel, County Limerick. Anne Dows, age 19, Mullahoran, County Cavan. Maria Fury, 18, County Galway. Maria Blundell, age 15, County Dublin. Catherine Fox, age 17, County Armagh. Catherine Nocton, Tyna, County Galway. Bridget Carney, age 15, Athlone, County Westmeath. Rose Sherry, age 17, Carrick McCross, Monaghan. Bridget Cavani, age 18, Anna Dow, County Leitrim. Margaret Buck, 16, Drummacholera, County Limerick. Mary Ann Burgess, age 19, Tullow, County Carlow. Eliza Fraser, age 14, Belfast, County Eldrin. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and that concludes our little ceremony here this afternoon. Thank you for coming along. The Sydney Memorial to the Victims of the Famine was unveiled at the Hyde Park Barracks in August 1999. The sculpture is by Hussein Valamanesh, an Iranian refugee, and his Australian wife, Angela. The sound installation is by Melbourne artist Paul Carter. I'd like to thank Terry Pollard, an orphan girl descendant and member of the committee which laboured for years to have the memorial erected, and Tom Power, who chaired the group and officiated at the unveiling. Thanks too to Mike Bogle, curator of the Hyde Park Barracks, and to Finton Vallely for playing the flute and supplying the Shanno singing. The other orphan girls you heard were Eleanor Dawson, Betty Epps and Joan Dwyer, great-granddaughter of Eliza Fraser. 
You can find out more about their story in Trevor McLaughlin's book, Barefoot and Pregnant. He's based at Macquarie University in Sydney. The programme was produced by me, Siobhan McHugh, with technical production by Paul Bradley. I know that Ireland feels sad at losing their girls, but I see it as Ireland's gift. Ireland's gift to us. She gave us these 4,000-odd girls. Wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift. Left with the Listen, do you?